everyone, this is Sophie, and welcome back to today's edition of Fresh New Shorts, a collection of short stories written and read by the author. This series is following the collection of stories found in the book A Physicist's Guide to Love and Other Natural Phenomena by John Blackmore. In today's story, The Falling, we see an acute loss of gravity that has people falling up and straight off the earth. How do we react when an unpredictable worldwide catastrophe can affect any one of us? The Falling It began quite unexpectedly, a man climbing steps near the embassy at lunch hour. Some bystanders said he was taking them two at a time, some not. Some said he wore a charcoal suit, others navy with a grey tie. His name was Daniel. He paused at the landing beside the embassy's modern sculpture that made you think of twisted crucifixes. Some said Daniel doubled over, perhaps with stomach cramps. Others said he stared up into the wild blue sky. But on the next detail, everyone agreed. He began to float, and then accelerate, as if falling off the earth. He didn't shout out. He spun around, contorting frantically, such as you can without benefit of friction or forces. Bewildered, perhaps, wondering... Where was the camera? Where was the wire? A woman shrieked and dropped her bag of oranges. People's arms pointed in a stiff salute. Their mouths formed incredible O's. The raucous tumult. Oh my God! Oh my God! Surely some prank or new form of advertising. But Daniel, arms flailing like a man being drawn underwater, rocketed into the air. Upward, ever upward, diminishing the way a child's balloon, carelessly released, becomes a point of color, a speck, and eventually nothing, nothing at all. The inevitable media flurry chipped fragmentary details from his life and held them under the glare for meaning. Daniel worked for revenue and taxation, auditing large companies with foreign assets. Perhaps he ran afoul of Chinese triads or Russian gangs. His high school yearbook said he was, he's voted most likely to wear a tie. On his neglected blog, the last post three months ago, he wrote about his first experience with seared tuna. He was surprised that he liked it. Daniel's wife had the perfect melancholy face of a porcelain ballerina. We've been married 13 years, Olive told the news anchor, interviewing her about what he portentously called the falling. We live ordinary days. A hesitation. Lived. The years of marriage wrote the next day's headlines. It became a useful fact in a story lacking many, as if the unlucky force of a single number could somehow suspend gravity for the time it took Daniel to fall off the earth. The media erected platforms outside Olive's house. Cameras rolled. Traffic slowed. People left flowers and stuffed bears. He was a good man, Olive said, her voice papery as a moth's wings. We weren't churchgoers or Bible readers. He planned to become a big brother in June. Her beautiful face became the poster image of the calamity, the bewilderment expressed through her red-tinged eyes. Condolences flooded in from all four corners, 
there were at least twenty offers of marriage. For a flicker, Olive belonged to the planet, but she snuffed the relationship, shutting her door on a world suddenly overturned. Olive's reclusion and Daniel's unremarkableness shifted the gaze of the restless beast. Ministers, psychics, Discovery Channel stars filled the vacuum. The rapture was upon us. Extraterrestrials, teleportation, the CIA, global warming-induced microfunnels, Al-Qaeda, angels, demagnetization of the Earth's core. Once finished with speculations, yet no closer to understanding the cause, reporters started interviewing reporters, the final part of any story eating itself. But then, it happened again. Elizabeth Carson of Fort Worth, Texas, fell while running from a taxi to the revolving doors of her office tower. She had paid the fare, left a good tip, and clattered away on high heels. It was threatening rain. Three steps, maybe four from the taxi, she started to lift off. She rose straight up, parallel to Fountain Place Tower, where Rudy Giuliani's law firm had offices. Slow and steady at first, but like Daniel, by the time she was passing the people on floor 30, at their desks, drinking coffee, making copies, thumbing phones, Betty Carson was accelerating on her way to space. Betty's fame, like John Landry or Buzz Aldrin, was fleeting. Betty's husband, Pierce Carson, a pleasant man if a little heavy, was convinced she would return to Earth. He held tightly to the what-goes-up theory of everything. NORAD confirmed that Betty had broken through the troposphere and from there completely floated off the planet. But Pierce believed she was returning. He waited for a sign. For Betty's day as news, speculation on where she would splash down filled the airwaves. But then, Ted Driscoll from Chicago eclipsed Betty, and Ted begat Gord Withers of New York, and Gord begat Jean Lupin of Saint-Malo, and, 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 and... By the second week, people were falling off the earth one to two, then five per day. Daniel had been a novelty story. This was catastrophe. Taking their cue from the sad and beautiful olive, people shunned the outside. They locked their doors, closed their windows. Playgrounds emptied, swings plied tiny arcs alone. Once bustling sidewalks were reduced to a frightened person here and there, dashing door to door, running lamppost to lamppost like home base in tag. Dog walkers drove onto fields and staked their animals with leads, racing back inside their cars. The retrievers and beagles forlornly baying at their masters, smelling something wrong in the air. The internet saved the suddenly cloistered world. As the traditional economic model crumbled, another rose to take its place. Online ordering surged. In a throwback to a dimly remembered good old day, companies delivered more and more door to door. Walmart astounded all watchers with the speed it mobilized an army of delivery trucks. They pulled up to your house. Workers tethered themselves to rings welded to the outside of their vehicles, and so secured they brought the sirloin tip roast, super fries, case of Coca-Cola, 
toilet paper, Florida oranges to your door. Emails lengthened as people had more time to write. And as a surprise, texting decreased as people were less distracted and on the fly. A gorilla splinter of the newly minted Gen F sprung up spontaneously through Facebook. Organized, they skulked about in violation of curfew, installing webcams with views onto parks and squares and fountains to ensure people stayed connected with the common wheel. The sites quickly became homepages and communities for the new population of shut-ins. Reporting by the reviving networks echoed every detail of North America's plight into a cacophonous din, making the faint cries of other life, of elsewhere or over there, difficult to hear. Humans were not the only victims of falling. In spectacular footage captured by a Montana rancher, 25 head of cattle drifted over a buttery moon. In the areas of compromised or failing states, the UN grappled with the challenge of recording the death toll, but in the end threw up its many hands and estimated 500 per day. Refugee camps were particularly prone. It was not uncommon for someone in the crush of bodies pressing for a bowl of rice to break suddenly from the throng and plummet upwards into the harsh, hot sky. Walmart, Google, and gold bars skyrocketed on the markets. American car manufacturers restarted a panic revival of ultra-heavy cars. Gas prices be damned. The Hummer came back, bigger than ever, with optional metal plates you could weld on the hood and sides. Life savings and mutual funds roller-coastered this way and that until topsy-turvy became a fact of life. But as with anything, some started to rebel. The Gen F webcammers sourced news from outside Fortress America. They saw how the rest of the world was coping. When potable water was still five miles from home, the choice between falling and parching was an easy one. Webcammers learned that neighbors in Africa roped together for trips to the well, to fields, to the Red Cross truck doling out the pill that stopped river blindness for one more year. Some started copying the practice. They came out at night, dressed in black leather and steampunk, the streets ominous and begloomed like London in the Blitz, sirens wailing when anyone fell within 10,000 acres. People roped together in trios and quartets. In the beginning, police arrested them. A picnic was a rebel act, feeding the ducks a punishable offense. But the trend caught, and daylight raids on parks became the norm. Outdoor equipment stores couldn't keep climbing harnesses and clips and ropes in stock. Once trendy neighborhoods returned to a buzz of business, clever districts installed pillars with hooks and fastened metal loops into sidewalks. Streets took on the appearance of horizontal climbing walls. People tied in to drink their lattes. A new wave of fellowship blossomed from the bunkered houses and blue glow of computer screens. The businessman roped in with the bike courier, the imam with the priest. People were weary of the limitations and broke free of the fear of falling with rope and carabiners. As life returned to a closer semblance of the time before Daniel fell, alternate news crept into the clatter. CNN removed the Crisis Falling logo from its newscasts.
people planned, finally, for the first pitch of the baseball season, with a complicated schedule predicated on playing in closed-roof fields with clips at every seat. There were still fallers, and nobody had any idea how many beavers, deer, apes, snakes, and field mice fell off the earth each day. But it was simply not reported with the previous zeal. The fall of five or so people per day in the Americas was the new normal. It was the same with the loss of 500 per day from Africa or Asia or wherever. After all, as the Secretary General of the UN said, a beautiful woman from Chile, more people died of whooping cough or measles each day than falling. For God's sake, ten times that number died from diarrhea. While the effect, falling, occupied 90% of the attention, debating the cause still held till 10%. The crackpots had largely faded from sight, replaced by Nobel laureates at center stage. One wag coined, death by physics, and it stuck. The scientists agreed gravity, or the acute loss of it, was the catalyst. People had never known so much about gravity. The value of big G, 6.67 times 10 to the negative 11 newtons, about gravitons, about gravity waves, the subtleties of Einstein's mind, previously reduced to the t-shirt slogan simplicity of MC squared. The high school belief in a force, exemplified by Newton and the apple, had evaporated. It had not been well known that gravity was not actually a force like electricity or the perplexing binding that held atoms together or allowed them to decay, as most of us had been taught. Gravity was actually a condition of the fabric of space-time in the way that Gore-Tex could be both waterproof and breathable. Awareness of the space-time continuum became the new carbon footprint from global warming, which had replaced genetic engineering of DNA sequencing, which had replaced the ozone layer and cosmic radiation. All of them, pieces of science suddenly thrust into public consciousness and forced to dance for the masses. People could quote general relativity. The bowling ball and ping-pong on a trampoline made its way into common parlance. String theory, with its imaginative leaps required to square the queerness of both subatomic and intergalactic worlds, was still suspect, but its coiled wrappings of dimension within dimension were thought to hide the gravimetric anomaly, a point black hole or pin-sized quasar that, like food poisoning, some said, was working its way through our sector of the universe. It may be permanent, like a parasite, or transitory, like a virus. Regardless, life had returned, albeit with more ropes and harnesses and floating animals. Human resilience was remarkable. But then, as if to shake a pharaoh unimpressed by frogs or boils, a great tear ripped the fabric asunder. As the sun rose on June 19th in the technology hub of Bangalore, a city of twisting Mars dust roads filled with more than 8 million people, everything not locked into the ground fell off the earth in a searing scar five kilometers wide. The scar tore westward up through Pakistan and across Iran, the Caspian Sea and into Turkey. From there to the Alps, the Loire Valley, 
the Lake District, across the North Atlantic, where it picked up a container ship, slashing in a claw-like zigzag through the United States, doubling back and plunging southward to gash Brazil before dying somewhere in the South Atlantic. The toll was put at just under 2 million people. To give the unfathomable context, reports noted it was more than 13 times the dead from Hiroshima, double the deaths from the 11-13-70 cyclone that hit the Ganges Delta. But it was too much to absorb. A bus filled with school children and wren lifted off a rural road like a NASA rocket. The vehicles and passengers of an entire rush hour on the Santa Monica freeway. The people inside the tin roof favelas outside Rio, up, up and away like Dorothy's Kansas house. Dogs, cats, sheep, chickens, pigs, lizards, deer, a Noah's Ark of animals tossed into the air and out into space. Sheds, cars, carts, tools, furniture, rubbish bins, everything not nailed to the earth. The world was shocked to stillness. People willed time to stop. Everyone joined a universal consciousness that was utterly emptying and despairing. Nothing stirred. Movement itself might provoke this nameless beast. Two million people. There's no cajoling this force. There's no protection. There's no rope strong enough. The planet waited, blindfolded and condemned, for the last bullet to be loaded into a still unknown chamber. There's no fury of looting or abandon. People realized they had been gripped by fear these three months, pretending they could live this way, and now the pretense was shattered and in pieces at their feet. But then, a day or so later, time having become indistinct in the rupture of Constance, the date was officially recorded June 21. One of the earlier installed webcams captured a woman on the street. The forgotten camera bloomed to life as movement crossed its field of view. As one, the planet's network of computers turned to the site. Olive. Olive had left her house. The world recognized her. The beautiful face now thinner, small lines and cracks, the trills and mordants of wisdom. Wrapped, they watched her dance down an abandoned road. It was a strange and beautiful dance that harkened back to another age, when simpler phantoms like plague or pox stalked us. She wore black tights and a dove gray t-shirt with an apple logo, her hair pulled into a perfectly round bun. In a series of arabesques and grand jetés, she moved as dancers may, unbound by gravity, daring the earth to throw her high the way her lover might if he were here. The empty street was her stage, the wind an orchestra, the balled-up papers gyring about her feet, possibly, just possibly hiding the next Principia Upanishads, Ninth Symphony, or Equal Flare Against the Darkness.
Thanks for listening to today's episode of Fresh New Shorts. If you enjoyed this story, please rate us five stars wherever your podcasts are available. You can find the ebook, A Physicist Guide to Love, on Amazon. Come back and listen to us again. Thank you.